If you would turn, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 15. I'm not going to read all 15 verses to begin with, so we'll begin at verse 1. But Mark, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, the scripture reads, Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be, which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such things like ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. We're continuing in our series, Mark's Biblical Answers to Puzzling Questions. Here in this chapter, we're asking the question, or the question comes up, are traditions more important than God's Word? We've stated that the Gospel of Mark touches on highlights in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but here in this chapter, the pace slows a little bit. For following our text are just two events recorded in this chapter. In verses 24 through 30, you have Christ's account of the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter. And then also in verses 31 through 7, you have the account of Christ healing a deaf man who had a speech impediment. But here in our text, it covers the basic question, human tradition or the Word of God, by which should one's doctrine and life be regulated? I want to give you a little bit of introductory information so we understand, because this involves really Jewish teaching and Jewish emphasis in regard to their understanding of the Word of God and their keeping the Word of God. And sometimes we, who are not really familiar with Jewish tradition and Jewish teaching, miss out on what's being brought here in the text. So I want to go ahead and give you a little bit of information about the background of this situation. This discourse involves the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a compilation, or is a compilation of Jewish oral laws made at the end of the second century with the premise that tradition is a fence around the law. Tradition, as the Jews saw it, protected God's holy word and assisted his people in keeping it. So the way they viewed it, this fencing of the law probably began well enough, but as the years passed, it produced some very strange teachings. For example, in an effort to protect the Sabbath from being broken through inadvertent labor, 
the devout were given an amazing list of prohibitions or fences such as looking in the mirror was forbidden. If you looked into a mirror on a Sabbath day and saw a great hair, a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out and thus perform work on the Sabbath. You know, that would be an all-day job for some. But anyway, they didn't want somebody performing work on this Sabbath. You can also not wear your false teeth. If they fell out, you would be compelled to pick them up, and thus you would be working. In regard to carrying a burden, you couldn't carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear one. So if someone was in the upstairs section of their home, they would tie the handkerchief around their neck or around their wrist, walk downstairs, untie it, and blow their nose. That way they weren't carrying a burden from one portion of the house to another. Or one was permitted to spit on the Sabbath, but had to be careful where. Because if you spit on the dirt and then you used your sandal to scuff the dirt, you'd be cultivating or tilling the ground. And that would be performing work. We look at those things and say, that's ridiculous. But in the Jewish mind, it had a specific purpose. It got so involved that Jewish rabbis would even debate whether or not a man who had a wooden leg, if on the Sabbath his house caught on fire, would he be permitted to carry his leg out of the house so it wouldn't burn? You know, again, to us that seems foolish, but for them... It was for the purpose of protecting their belief system as Jews. The Sabbath, of course, was just one concern of those who would fence the law. The biggest concern of the Mishnah, which, by the way, included some 186 pages, was cleanliness. Much of the concern here had to do with ritual washing. This originally rose from the Bible command that the priests had to wash their hands. Just briefly, Exodus 30, verse 19, For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. It's talking about the laver before they entered into the tabernacle. And again in Exodus 40, verse 12, Thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. We understand the importance of that. The priest, it represented the priest being clean as he went before the Lord on behalf of God's people. However, that concept of cleanliness got expanded and drawn out to unusual lengths. Though it was only a priestly command, all pious Jews began to do it about 200 years before the time of Christ. By Jesus' day, this practice was firmly entrenched as a requirement for all those in the Jewish community who wanted to be clean. For example, we see Jesus addressing that in verses 3 and 4. And they said, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And again in verse 4. They were washing all the time. Before meals, they would pour a little water over their hands, elevating them slightly so the water would run down their wrists and they would rub their hands together, and then they would lower their hands for the rinsing so the water could run down their arms, their hands, and then drip off their fingers. But this was just for meals. When they were returning from a place where they could be defiled, such as the market, they went to great extremes, and some commentators believe the extent was so much so that people would bathe every time they came from a location where they would be considered unclean. This involved also the washing of their utensils. The, uh, the Mishnah 
indicated something of the extremities of their bent during Jesus' time, for it devoted 35 pages to washing vessels and other daily implements. 35 pages of oral law giving to washing dishes. I mean, we look at that and say, all right, you put water in the sink, soap in the water, dishes in the soap, wash them, rinse them, dry them off, they're done. Well, for whatever reason, this got to be quite a practice. But during Jesus' day, the scriptural rituals of purity were so fenced and refenced, the concept of true inner purity had been trivialized to a system of external washings. Thus, a collision was inevitable. Jesus, the preacher of righteousness, was going head-to-head with the Pharisees, the guardians of Jewish ritual. That's what this text involves. What I'm going to do is kind of give you an overview this morning of this event between Jesus and the Pharisees so that we can consider this, this question, which is more important, tradition or the Word of God. The first five verses, we see the delegation from Jerusalem. I'm not going to take time to read that again, but you note the religionists were a fact-finding group or commission from Jerusalem. They had come to investigate Jesus to see exactly what was going on and happening. News of his preaching, his healing, his conflicts with religious leaders had local authorities in Jerusalem concerned about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, these men were sent up to Galilee to meet with Jesus, to observe him, to question him, and bring back a report to the elders in Jerusalem so they could find out exactly what was going on. A part of their duty was to confront Jesus concerning their perceived beliefs that he was violating the law of God. And we see this was a common practice. Earlier, uh, we note that uh, one group accused Jesus of casting out devils or performing miracles by Beelzebub. Mark chapter 3. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by. Luke chapter 11, verse 53. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. This was a regular part of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, nearly everywhere he went, he was thronged by crowds who wanted to see him perform miracles, who wanted to, to themselves experience these great blessings. And along with that, there was the religious crowd that was standing by, ready to attack him, to accuse him, to condemn him, and to berate him in front of the, uh, those who were observing. So this was something that he dealt with regularly. But this commission, when they arrived, immediately saw the disciples breaking one of their traditions. And after all, since they were the religious elite of their day, they took it upon themselves to rebuke Jesus in this matter. You see, the disciples were eating with unwashed or unclean hands. And of course, that meant that the disciples didn't have bad manners. But it meant the disciples were unclean 
in the eyes of God. The traditional ceremony of washing one's hands before meals is a sign of thanksgiving to God. And as far as this religious group was concerned, that picture or that type had been broken and the disciples were thus not grateful for what God had given them and what he had done for them. Therefore, the disciples were unclean. Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? They didn't ask about their spiritual condition. They didn't ask about their commitment to the Lord. They didn't ask about their dedication to Jesus Christ. They didn't ask about their sincerity in walking with the Lord and serving Him. No, they accused them of being religiously unclean. Simply put, this verse answers the question, why was that group there? As an official delegation from Jerusalem, they were theological hitmen who were out to stop the Lord Jesus Christ. And this record helps us to understand who these people were and why they were there. When we notice verses 6 through 13, we see something interesting. In many cases, when Jesus was was asked a question, he responded with a question, putting the matter back on the individual that was confronting him or questioning him. This time he didn't do that. No, he went right at him. He gives them a dissertation that gets right to the heart of the matter. He looks at him and gives them a straight answer based on the word of God and he, he does his best to help them to see how wrong they are and how disappointing to the Lord their practice was. So it's interesting to note his response here. He first deals with the aspect of human worship, which we believe is what the Jews were involved in in this time. Notice, in in this passage, in short, the position of the Pharisees was that the man who paid the most rigid attention to external observances of human invention was reckoned to be the holiest. In their mind, he that followed the most rules... He that was most obedient to the rituals. He that held to the religious teachings of the Jews closest was the man who was closest to God. Their faith was based upon a bunch of do's and don'ts. And Jesus tried to bring this out. The question is, why did they hold to that view? Before we get into Jesus' response, I want you to understand this. First of all, the Jewish nation had been held together by their religious beliefs. Through the centuries, Jewish people had been conquered by army after army, and by the millions they had been deported and removed from their homeland, Israel, and scattered around the world. Even in the days of Jesus, many Jews were enslaved by Rome. Their religion, the Jewish faith, was the binding force that kept Jews together. In particular, their belief that God had called them to be a distinctive people, for they worshipped the true and living God, and their rules governing the Sabbath, the temple, marriage, worship, cleansing, and dietary laws made them separate and distinct from everyone else. So these men believed part of their task in upholding their religious practices was their duty to help 
preserved the Jews as a nation. You see, it was their religion that helped them to maintain their distinctiveness as a people and a nation. Jewish leaders knew that, and they were opposed to anybody who brought that tie, if you will, into jeopardy. They didn't want anybody in their ranks doing anything that would undermine their Jewish heritage. Secondly, these men were of deep, deep conviction. They were strong in their beliefs. For to break any law or rule governing belief or practice was a serious offense. And as the religious leaders of the day, it was their duty, it was a task that was given to them to safeguard the Word of God, to safeguard the law of God, and to expose anyone who would say or do anything that would undermine the Word of God and thus jeopardize the belief and the faith of the Jewish people. So their task was one that in their minds was a just cause. They believed with all their heart they were doing right. They didn't see them as being, see themselves as being prejudiced. They didn't see themselves as being overly harsh toward the Lord. They were zealous about protecting their nation and their heritage, just as many Jews are today. They protect their country with a great zeal and determination. But Jesus, in his response, makes it clear there's a difference between tradition and obeying the word of God. There's a difference between human practices based on the Bible and the teachings of the Bible. So he gets gets, uh, right to the matter when he goes ahead and gives them his response. He points out three areas here. First of all, he points out in verse 8, they added their tradition to the scriptures as a supplement. You understand what a supplement is? Sometimes people are encouraged to take vitamins as a supplement to their diet to help provide them with something they're not getting in their regular nutritional practices. Notice verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God... Ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. So he said what you've done is you've taken the word of God and this idea of cleanliness and you've brought alongside this additional teaching of expanding that not just to the priest and their practice but for everybody and their utensils and things like that. So he said you've, you've brought something along and said this, this you need to do along with the word of God. The two of them together are going to go very well. Well understand, we as Christians, we believe the Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It doesn't need something else brought alongside of it to make it more effective or relevant for our day. God's word stands alone. And the Jewish people of that day didn't understand that. Notice in verse 9, Jesus said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. In addition to adding their tradition to the scripture, they place their traditions on the same level as the word of God, thus having equal authority to the word of God. 
Well, beloved, not so. There's not another book. There's not another teaching. There's not another religious faith. There's not another practice known to man that can be elevated to the level of quality and purity and sanctity as is the Word of God. And the problem is Jesus said you've rejected one part of Scripture and you've put your own teachings up there right next to it, making them equal in importance. And then not only that, notice verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things you do. See, they didn't just add to the word of God. They didn't just make their teachings equal to the word of God. Now they believe their teachings supersede the word of God. See the pattern here as far as what Jesus is addressing? What might have started out as an innocent practice or what might have started out as a zealous safeguard of their nationality and their religious beliefs got to be a teaching and a practice that superseded, that excelled and overrode the Word of God. What a terrible, terrible mistake these people made. This is what angered the Lord Jesus Christ in regard to the Pharisees' human traditions. In their minds, the traditions constituted true religion. Obedience to the Scripture. Wow, you think about that. Obedience to the Scripture was lost altogether. That's why he called them hypocrites in quoting Isaiah 29, 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. He quotes that passage in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. When anyone, religious leader or not, chooses to take something and replace it for the Word of God, they're making a serious mistake in the eyes of the Lord. King Saul did that very thing when he thought he was doing right by sparing King Amalek and sparing the, uh, the finest of flocks and herds of the Amalekites. Samuel said, not so. He said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Said the most important thing we can do as Christians, as followers of God, is obey God's word. We teach our children and grandchildren that. We teach them songs like trust and obey or obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. We teach them how important it is to obey. But the question is, do we demonstrate that through our attitude, through our actions? Do we show them what it means to obey the Lord? 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. Speaking of Saul, said, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For the Lord, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. See, it's a heart issue. It's not a matter of obeying a list of do's and don'ts. It's a matter is your heart right with the Lord. That's why Jesus called them hypocrites. Because these rules taught by man 
became the oral law of the day and thus superseded the word of God. What Christ had to say about hypocrites in his ministry is very serious. We're not going to take time to go there, but I would encourage you to read Matthew chapter 23 later. Matthew chapter 23, verses 14 through 33, Jesus lists the characteristics of hypocrites. Hypocrites shall receive the greater damnation. They are the children of hell. They are fools and blind. They are blind guides. Hypocrites are full of extortion and excess. Hypocrites are full of all uncleanness. They're serpents, a generation of vipers. And hypocrites shall not escape the damnation of hell. Remember the nation in which this event is taking place is Israel. These were the people who received the law of God from his very hand through Moses. These were the people who were the chosen people of God, blessed among all nations, favored among all people in the eyes of the Lord. And now, now they've turned to a list of do's and don'ts with a greater emphasis on washing a pot or washing their hands than having clean hearts. Someone has said, never did fine gold become so dim. From the religion of the books of Deuteronomy and Psalms to the religion of washing hands and cups and pitchers, how great was their fall. No wonder our Lord, in the time of his earthly ministry, found the people like sheep without a shepherd. External observances alone feed no consciences and sanctify no hearts. Jesus warned believers of this through the book of Titus when he said, They profess that they know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Be careful. Be careful, Christian. We don't fall into the trap of emphasizing our outward works over the inward cleanliness of the heart. Now Jesus goes on to give us the distinctions of divine worship. Verses 14 and 15. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defileth the man. Remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Jesus is emphasizing the difference now between inward worship and outward worship. Divine worship and human worship. And he said, if you truly want to walk with the Lord, like he said in John chapter 4, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He said, it's a heart matter. Dr. Vincent Taylor, author of the Gospel according to St. Mark, said of this, In laying down the principle that uncleanness comes from within, not from without, Jesus' pronouncement stated a truth uncommon in contemporary Judaism, which was destined to free Christianity from the bondage of legalism. William Barclay called this well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. For it is made clear by our Lord in this instance and throughout his teaching, Worship of the Lord comes from the heart, not 
in what we do with our hands, not where we go with our feet, not in what we do to be seen of others, but what we do in true worship of the Lord. Scripture makes it quite clear. One's relationship with the God of heaven isn't dependent upon obeying a set of rules and rituals, but in knowing his Son, Jesus Christ. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Peter wrote, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Oh, how important it is for us to recognize it is a relationship with Jesus Christ that makes the difference in our state before God. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. This is what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. We have a personal heart-to-heart relationship with the thrice holy God of heaven. For it's Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that declares that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart... Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This is what the Ethiopian eunuch came to realize. When Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Hebrews 10.22 declares, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Conclusion this morning. Jesus Christ is the way by which anyone can gain entrance into heaven. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But it's not through an empty series of rituals, but by personally knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. An author penned this poem about the society in which he lived. It's kind of a a, a funny little thought here. But he wrote, First dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, and carriages were horseless, and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, telegraphy was wireless, and coffee, caffeineless. Soon, oranges were seedless, the pudding green was weedless, the college boy hatless, and the proper diet fatless. Now, motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, and our new religions are godless. That poem was written... In 1936, things continue to move along. More and more are given to an empty, vain religion than they are the Lord Jesus Christ. Though someone preach a new gospel, Paul warned, don't be fooled by another gospel. Don't be fooled by the gospel of religion. Don't be fooled by the gospel of good works. Don't be fooled by the gospel of good intentions. It is the gospel that bears the good news, Jesus Christ, 
died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and now sitteth at the right hand of God the Father, ever making intercession for our souls. Our hope is not in a list of do's and don'ts. Our hope is in the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has said, religion is the best armor a man can have, but it is the worst cloak. And another has written, the United States of America is the third largest unchurched nation in the world, where over 200 million Americans do not attend any church on a given Sunday. May I say something is wrong with their religion. It isn't working.